The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. That was, for sure, the uh, nicest introduction I've ever had, and it makes me out to be a whole lot nicer than I really am. I do thank you for those kind and gracious words, Jim. I do want to thank Jim and Marsha and Craig and the entire IBCD team what tremendous hospitality they've shown to Shirley and I already, and what a great job they do of organizing this conference, and really appreciate uh, all that you and your team do uh, for the speakers and for all of us here. I uh, also want to thank each of you for being here. It always amazes me. You're taking your Thursday, Friday, Saturday out of your active lives, busy ministries to come here to be fed by God's Word so you can feed Others. And I want to thank and applaud you for being here with us tonight. As Jim mentioned, I am also here representing the Biblical Counseling Coalition. We have a booth uh, to your left, my right. Uh, I'll be presenting tomorrow a workshop session, the Biblical Counseling Coalition, Biblical Counseling and You, where we'll talk about how we can all join together to multiply the ministry of the Biblical Counseling Movement. There's also a, an insert about the BCC in your notebook. But tonight is not to talk about the BCC, it's to talk about God's Word. Uh, I would encourage you to turn either in your Bibles or your phones or your iPads to Philippians chapter 2. In your outline notebook on page 13, you have a two-page outline that you can follow along also. As we'll be preaching tonight from Philippians 2, 1-18, Christ-centered counseling, radical ministry in a darkened world. We've prayed several times tonight, we're going to pray several times more Please join me as I want to pray for you. You know, many times you can come to a conference like this to be fed to minister to others, and yet we're people in need of ministry and grace too. So I want to pray that God will minister to me, to you, through this conference this week. Please join me. Father, I do thank you for my brothers and sisters who have sacrificed of their time to come here. And they're here wanting to become better equipped to minister to others. And yet, Father, we know that we all, struggle. We're real people with real problems, with real life issues. And so as we look at this tremendous truth from Philippians 1 and 2, the truth that Christ is indispensable, as we look at that truth together, I pray that you would not only equip us further to minister to others, but I pray, Father, that you would, would encourage our hearts and our souls through the grace that we have in Christ. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for me, it was Easter Sunday, April 14, 1974. I'd been attending Grace Baptist Church in Gary, Indiana for about half a year. Uh, coming from a non-Christian home, I began attending at Grace Baptist Church when my older brother started dating a girl from Grace. You date a Baptist girl and you go to a Baptist church. And if your older brother happens to be one of the best wrestlers in the state of Indiana, and he doesn't want to go to church alone, he makes you go to church with him. Talk about God's sovereign grace. Humanly speaking, in God's sovereign grace, that's how, for the next six months, I heard the gospel preached every morning by Pastor Bill Good, a name that probably many of you know if you're familiar with the early history of the biblical counseling movement. Well, on that Easter Sunday, during the invitation at the end of the service, it was, after all, a Baptist church, I went forward, and I was met by Pastor Ron Alton, another name that probably many of you know from the biblical counseling world today. 
Uh, back those 30-some years ago, Pastor Ron was youth pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Gary, Indiana. Uh, pastor Ron, as he shared the gospel with me that Easter morning, he clarified for me what I already knew in my heart. I was a sinner. I could not save myself. Christ, as we've been singing tonight, had died on the cross and rose again to pay the penalty for my sin, and I needed to confess my sin, to repent, and to entrust my soul to Christ. That was Easter Sunday, April 14, 1974. Well, Pastor Ron Alchin was not only gospel-centered, he was also discipleship-centered. For the, for the next 18 months, before the Lord led him to another church, he built into my life as he spoke and lived the truth in love. And part of that ministry of speaking into my life involved helping me to prepare my very first sermon. Uh, that Sunday night, I preached on the same passage we're looking at today, Philippians chapter 2. And I can remember Pastor Ron mentoring me in that sermon, taking me through what the theologians call in verses 6, 7, and 8 of chapter 2, the kenosis passage. Being a new believer, when he said kenosis, I thought it was a city in Wisconsin. And, and I had no clue what in the world that had to do with the text. But Pastor Ron patiently helped me to understand the theology of that passage so I could accurately handle God's word. Well, Pastor Ron Alchin not only helped me to learn how to preach God's word, by his life he modeled how to live out God's word. I'll never forget the Thursday evening when my non-Christian family invited Pastor Ron into our house for an entire evening to talk to them about questions they had about Christ. Now, imagine that, a non-Christian family inviting a Baptist preacher into their home to talk about Christ. That's like saying, sick them to a dog. And uh, Pastor Ron was gracious. But, but you have to wonder, why in the world would they do that? Well, they had watched his ministry, his life, as he ministered to me. And though they were not committed to Christ, they were attracted to his Christ-likeness. Well, Pastor Ron also helped me to face my struggles in coming from a non-Christian home, I had my fair share of struggles. I struggled to live godly. I struggled to live maturely. Struggled to, to handle my emotions in a mature, godly way. I struggled to maintain purity in my thought life. And as Pastor Ron helped me, he did not point me to self-help manuals. He did not point me to my own resources. He did not even point me to himself. As Pastor Ron ministered to me, he pointed me to Christ. He understood and helped me to understand that I needed Christ not only for my salvation, but I needed Christ every day of my Christian life. He helped me to begin to understand and apply the central message of the Bible, that Christ is indispensable. And that radical message is the message of our text for this evening, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. And it's really the radical idea that we must apply to our lives. Christ is indispensable. For part of our theme is we want to cultivate in our churches this attitude that saturates into the congregation, one another ministry and biblical counseling. And here's a premise of Philippians 2 that really hits that theme. If we're to do that, then as counselors and pastors and leaders in our churches, we must live our lives worthy of the gospel. Not by living through our own power, but by living through Christ, like Christ, and for Christ. Now, to see our desperate need to live through Christ, we have to go back beyond Philippians 2 to the preceding context. 
In Philippians 1.27, Paul begins with the foreboding words, whatever happens. Imagine you're the Philippian. You know that Paul, as he pens this, is in jail. And he says, whatever happens. Well, Paul tells us that it's not just Paul who's suffering for his faith. The Philippians are also being persecuted. They're being opposed by the world. In fact, we are told by Paul in verse 30 that they are enduring the same struggle that Paul was enduring. This word struggle is an interesting word. It comes from the athletic arena, and I happen to be a, a wrestling coach, so every sermon has to have a wrestling illustration in there. But it is a picture, this word struggle pictures the, the exertion, the strife, the hardship that goes along and is connected with that athletic competition. So Paul is writing to real people with real problems, with real issues that he shared with them. And, and it's as if Paul said this, You know, we don't know what might happen next. We don't know what new opposition, what new opponent we might face tomorrow. We don't know what new suffering and struggle the next day might bring. We don't know how the world might try to beat us up and knock us down. Well, you see, that whatever happens is the reason that Paul prays in Philippians 1.28 that the Philippians would not be frightened by those who opposed them, by those who wanted to knock them down for their gospel faith. Now this word frightened, as you see in the PowerPoint image, pictures a, a timid or a skittish or a scared horse. It was used to mean someone who's startled, who's terrified, fearful, worried, anxious, and overwhelmed. Have you ever felt like that in your life? Has life ever beaten you down like that? I mean, let's be honest, when life is beating us down, our typical prayer and the typical prayer of our counselees is often about, Lord, change my circumstances and change my feelings. Well, as the Apostle Paul is ministering to the Philippians, that's not where his focus is. He's not satisfied with changed circumstances and changed feelings any more than you and I are as biblical counselors. He's focused on changing their character. As he writes in Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this word conduct was used in uh, the Roman Empire of Paul's day to speak of good citizenship of the Roman citizen who was free and not enslaved. The idea was you're free, you're not enslaved. Live up to the responsibilities and privileges you have as a Roman citizen. We know from Philippians 3.20, just a few verses later in this text, that Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. I want to take that concept, and I want to take what we've looked at in this background, and I want to put together what I think Paul has been saying to this point to the Philippians. I think it might go like this. Behave as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Even when you're opposed, persecuted, suffering, struggling, and beaten down by this world, live like citizens of Christ kingdom of the next world of the world to come christ has broken the chains of sin and freed you from satan's power so live like the new person you already are in christ when the world knocks you down paul's saying don't turn to the world for answers the world teaches us to live as citizens of earth through self by self for self god's word teaches and empowers us to live as citizens of heaven on earth through christ like christ and for Christ's glory. Now, as Paul says this, he's not naive as if that's an easy thing to do. Paul understands how difficult it is to live a godly life in an ungodly world. That's why he describes for us in Philippians 1.27 how it is that we can stand firm when the world wants to knock us down. 
He says this, stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. This word contend in the Greek is a compound word. It's made up of soon, which is with, and athleo, which you can guess is athlete, athletes together. Paul's saying, how do we stand firm when the world, world is tempting to knock us down? We stand firm by being athletes together. We don't stand firm alone. We stand firm together. That means that if our churches are to become a place that are saturated with one another ministry as leaders in the biblical counseling world, we have to stand firm together. As Jim indicated, that's part of my role with, with kind of the big name leaders, that we are standing firm together. But all of us and in our local churches, we have to stand firm together. Husbands and wives, it means if our marriages are to be godly, we are to stand firm together. Parents and children, we need to stand firm together as teammates. When I counsel couples, and I know all of you do a lot of counseling and marriage counseling, maybe your experience sometimes is like mine. Couples come to that meeting and they're, how shall we say, kind of at each other's throat, right? Uh, the wife thinks her husband is her worst enemy. The husband thinks the wife is, is her worst adversary. And so perhaps you do what I often do in a setting like that. Well, first I pray. Uh, but then also I try to communicate to them right from the beginning. We've got to change your image, your vision of who your enemy is. Your spouse is not your enemy, though it may feel that way. Your joint enemy is Satan. And I want us to come together to work together as teammates soon at the Leo. I want us to stand firm together as soulmates and defeat your enemy, Satan. Now, that same principle is true of us as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We stand firm and contend together as spiritual Olympic athletes, and we do that through Christ. Now, all of this has simply been background, vital background, to help us to understand how Philippians 1 sets up the premise for this idea of why we need to live not through our power, but through Christ's power. These Philippians were assaulted by internal fears. Don't be frightened. Don't be skittish, Paul said. They were, they were dealing with external opposition. They could be jailed next, just like Paul was. The people Paul ministered to were tempted to give up and give in, just like you and I are sometimes. Now, when the people in your church come to you and they're tempted to give up and give in, maybe they've come to you and they've already said, we've seen the divorce attorney. Where do you turn people? Well, think about where Paul turned people. And in fact, let's notice in verse 1 where Paul doesn't turn people, what he doesn't do. In Philippians 2, Paul doesn't tell a bunch of cute stories. He tells the truth about Jesus. He doesn't point people to their own resources. He points people to the resources of Christ. He says it this way to struggling people in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Now, we're going to reread that in a moment because we've read that for scores of times, right? But how many times have we read 2-1 outside the context of what we just talked about? This contending together, this suffering, this struggling. So let's read that first in the context of chapter 1. It goes like this. You see it on the PowerPoint slide. Even when the world tries to knock you down, you can stand firm together. Here's the key. Because you have already received encouragement from being united with Christ. Because you have already received the comfort of his love. Because you already have fellowship with the Spirit. Because you already have tenderness and compassion from God the Father. 
See, Paul's counsel, biblical counsel, is Christ-centered counsel. Here's how we attempt to communicate it in the Biblical Counseling Coalition's confessional statement. This is a document that 36 of us worked on for over nine months. In my computer, I have draft 10. It's a draft that's now up on the Biblical Counseling Coalition website. The confessional statement about Christ, here's how we say it. We point people to a person, Jesus our Redeemer, and not to a program, theory, or experience. We place our trust in the transforming power of the Redeemer, as the only hope to change people's hearts, not in any human system of change. We sang about that tonight. People need a personal and dynamic relationship with Jesus, not a system of self-salvation, self-management, or self-actualization. Wise counselors seek to lead struggling, hurting, sinning, and confused people to the hope, resources, strength, and life that are available only in Christ. When you and I struggle, where do we turn? Where do we turn to find victory in our sin and victory in our suffering? Paul turns us to Christ. Paul doesn't turn us to self-help. Paul turns us to Christ's hope. And what we see in Philippians 2.1 are four examples of the hope that Christ gives us. We're going to look at the first one as an example of the other three. This encouragement from our union with Christ. Now, you probably know that this word encouragement is paraklesis. It's used of one called alongside to help, to comfort, to counsel. This is the same word that Jesus uses in John 14 with his fearful disciples. Remember, he's ready to leave. And Jesus said to them, don't let your heart be troubled. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you another what? Another comforter, another counselor, another paraclete. The same word in a different form used right here. And what Jesus is saying is he's not simply someone called alongside to help he is the encourager who is called inside of you by his very presence to give you the courage to live the christian life every week i counsel by skype with a young missionary from italy he's single he's lonely and at times he's fearful he also happens to love the lord of the rings trilogy Now, I don't know how many of you in your counseling use the Lord of the Rings, but I use all sorts of things to get across our biblical principles, and hopefully you'll see how this comes into play. So we were talking together about a classic scene at the end of the second movie. You may recall, Mr. Frodo is exhausted. He's ready to give up. He's ready to give in. He's holding his hand up, ready to surrender that ring of power to the evil flying creature. Remember that scene? And right then, right in the nick of time, his traveling companion, his encourager, Sam, comes up, tackles him. They roll down this embankment. Mr. Frodo is half crazy. He pulls his dagger. He's ready to stab Sam. And Mr. Sam underneath him says, Mr. Frodo, it's me, you're Sam. Don't you know you're Sam? And Mr. Frodo says some of the most discouraging words you'll ever hear in his tone. I just can't do it. I can't go on. He is spent. He's exhausted. And we have a beautiful picture of encouragement at that point in time. Sam, first of all, empathizes with them. I'm with you. By rights, we shouldn't even have to be here. But he doesn't stop with empathy. He moves on to encouragement. He places courage within Mr. Frodo. He tells them that we're fighting for something more. There's a fight that's worth fighting for. And as he gives this encouragement, the scene ends and that second movie ends with Mr. Frodo looking at Sam and said, I couldn't go on without you. 
my Sam, my, my spiritual friend and my encouragement partner. Well, as my young missionary friend and I talked about that, we went back to Philippians 2 and verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. And we rejoice together that Christ is our infinite, ultimate Sam. He doesn't just travel with us, he travels in us. He doesn't just tell us that we're fighting for the Hobbit Shire. He tells us and empowers us that we're fighting for kingdom purposes. He doesn't just speak words of encouragement to us. He is our encourager. Well, our sermon's not nearly done yet. However, I want to do something a tad different about a third of the way through this message, and we're going to do this a couple times. said at the beginning, I wanted this message from God's Word not only to be about our ministries, but about our lives. I want to stop a third of the way through, and I want to pray for you. I want to pray for me. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, I don't know what's beating down my brothers and sisters right now. I don't know what's so discouraging in life and ministry that they sometimes feel like they're, they're ready to give up and give in. But I do know the one who is their soon athlete, oh, the one who is their teammate ready to fight for them. I do know the one who is their paraclesis, their encourager. Heavenly Father, may my brothers and sisters know your son and your spirit as their Sam, standing ready to encourage them to place your eternal almighty power, courage, and boldness within them by dwelling in them. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, friend, and encourager, we pray. Amen. Now remember, our sermon's not over yet. And our sermon's not finished yet because the Apostle Paul is not finished yet. Having taught, taught us about our means for Christian living, that we live not through our own power, but through Christ, Paul now helps us to apply the truth that we live worthy of the gospel by living like Christ. He is our model. He says it like this in Philippians 2, 2 through 5. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You may wonder why I talked about radical throughout this message. That's radical counsel. You're not going to hear that radical, other-centered counsel anywhere in the world's counseling system. Just as an example, Time Magazine, late last year, their end-of-the-year edition, 212, they compiled their 10 ideas that are changing your life. And there were the usual suspects like computers are destroying your brain and humans are destroying the planet. But, but the bulk of these 10 ideas really communicated a key message that's been destroying the human soul ever since Adam and Eve. This message of self-sufficiency, self-centeredness, and selfishness. Let me just, just give you two examples. First of all, in this Time article, living alone is the new norm. In one of the business, biggest societal changes ever witnessed, the number of Americans living alone has increased from 4 million in 1950, which was 9% of households, to 33 million today, which is 28% of households. But New York University sociologist Eric Klingenberg says this is the ideal life. Quote, living alone serves a purpose. It helps us pursue modern values, which are what? They're not Philippians 2, 2 to 5. Individual freedom, personal control, self-realization. 
Living alone allows us to do what we want, when we want, on our own terms. It liberates us from the constraints of our partner's needs and demand and permits us to focus on ourselves. That's presented as a positive societal value. Another example from this 10 ideas that are changing your life. The rise of the nuns, not Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E-S. The fastest growing religious group in the U.S., 16%, is the category of people who say they have no religious affiliation. That doesn't mean the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, don't want any kind of church. Time says no, they just want to be free from rigid dogma and do religion their way. Cue Frank Sinatra, and I did it my way. Well, taken together, these studies frame a picture of a large capital I. I want what I want and I want it now, and I want it on my own terms. You won't hear that message. You won't hear those values promoted in churches that are seeking to cultivate an environment of one another biblical counseling ministry. Instead, you're going to hear the same values that Paul presented in Philippians 2, 2 to 5. Unity, self-giving, humility, self-denying, charity or agape love, self-sacrificing. Now, let's think about this. As biblical counselors, I mean, we understand that we all naturally want to be encouraged, loved, and comforted. Nothing wrong with that natural desire, right? But because of passages like this and because of the model of Christ, we know that although we might want that, we reoriented our our minds to the mind of Christ. And so our thinking becomes something like this. While I would want you to encourage me, my first order of business is not getting you to encourage me. It's encouraging you. Why? Because I'm already encouraged in Christ. My first order of business is not getting you to love me. It's loving you with Christ's love because I've already been loved by Christ. My first order of business is not demanding that you comfort me. It's seeking to find ways I can biblically comfort you because why? We've already been comforted in Christ. I mean, do you see how radical that is? I mean, Instead of thinking that others must think like me or it's my way or the highway, we choose this self-giving unity that Paul talks about in Philippians 2.2. 2. Being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now let's think about the theme of this conference, which is cultivating this Christ-centered atmosphere so that our churches grow as a one-another community. Now it is vital that we teach Christ-centered counseling. But on the basis of this message and many other passages, I'm saying it's at least equally vital that we live Christ-centered lives. We can do all the teaching we want, but as people watch us as pastors, counselors, leaders in our churches, and we're living self-centered, I want what I want lives, then we can do all the speaking and teaching we want. We will saturate our our congregations with an atmosphere of one another ministry when we live Christ-centered one another lives. Once again, for a second time, I'd like to stop and pray for you, pray for myself about this Philippians 2, 2 to 5 mentality. Please join with me. Heavenly Father, you know the relationship struggles that my brothers and sisters and that I am experiencing. Lord Jesus, your word tells us that you were tempted in all points just like us and yet without sin. So we pray that as we face relationship struggles, that will respond like Christ, like you. When we're tempted to demand that our spouse, our children, or our parents think my way or the highway, may we remember Christ who said, not my will, but yours be done. When we're tempted in our homes, at work, in ministry, or at church to 
demand that others esteem us and think highly of us. Help us to remember and follow the example of Christ, who in humility sacrificed his life for us. Father, when we're tempted to look out for our own interests and focus on ourselves, may we, like Christ, empty ourselves and die to self and live for others. Father, radically change us so that our churches are radically changed as we live like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Again, we're not finished yet because Paul's not finished yet. Paul's radical counsel gets even more radical in Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Speaking to his counselees, if you will, who are struggling with external suffering, with internal fears, with self-centered temptation, Paul doesn't offer them four steps to be a good friend. He doesn't offer them five principles to be a better parent. Now, steps and principles, we'll learn a lot of those, I'm sure, this week. They can be wonderful, what? If they are grounded on the biblical foundation of gospel truth applied to daily living. And that's exactly what Paul does. No principles without being grounded on applying gospel truth to life. Here's how he says it in verses 5 through 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, that's that kenosis, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Now in ministering to, to frightened and discouraged people, where does Paul turn people? He turns them to theology, he turns them to Christology, imagine that. He turned them to the doctrine of the life, death, burial, and ascension of Jesus Christ. He doesn't give them self-help books. He drops the doctrine of Christ smack dab on their suffering and their sin, just like we're called to do as biblical counselors. Why does he do that? Why do we do that? Because we're convinced that truth is for life, that doctrine is for practice, and that God's word is relevant for every life issue. Now, we have to understand that, that even in our evangelical church world, sometimes we get this theology thing all confused. We forget the practicality of deep Christology. Let me give you an example. I offer all-day seminars called How to Care Like Christ. In the morning portions and sessions, we talk about a biblical theology of biblical counseling. We look at biblical answers to life's seven ultimate questions. And then in the afternoon, those sessions, we talk about a methodology of biblical counseling. We, we kind of settle on and focus on four prominent biblical counseling relational competencies or skills, if you will. Well, recently, after outlining that uh, design to an evangelical pastor, a good man, he said to me, well, you know, as I think about that, could you maybe like rush through the theology part or maybe skip it all together so our people could get right to the practical stuff? And as I kind of picked my jaw up off the table and tried to graciously respond with theology is practical. I mean, we talk about the authority and sufficiency of God's word. We need to talk about the authority and sufficiency and relevancy of God's word all in one breath because that's really what we're talking about. See, that's what Paul's talking about when he wants to talk to people about humility and charity and love and being other-centered. What does he do? He paints a portrait of Christ, Christology. And what an awesome portrait it is. 
mean, he's talking about the God of the universe who, who in uninterrupted fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit, chose voluntarily to leave that relationship, to come to earth, to humble himself, to take on the form of a servant, and to die the horrific and humiliating death of crucifixion for our sins. I mean, think about this. If the infinite, eternal Jesus stoops that far to serve us, then no matter how far we think we're stooping to serve other people, it's minuscule in comparison. Now, I'm not preaching to you guys. I'm preaching to me. Let me tell you a somewhat recent example of this. Last summer and fall, for four months, we had Shirley's mom, Hilda, with us. And uh, we, we loved loving and, and serving Hilda. And once the fall came around, Shirley's a hardworking kindergarten teacher. And so she's, you know, teachers, they're, they're working a lot. And she did everything she could to minister to, to mom. But I work out of the home. And so for a lot of times, that time in the day was, was kind of my time to not only work, but try to be the primary caregiver for, for mom. And in those moments when I would get real arrogant about how humble I was being, now put that together in your mind, (laughs) by serving my mother-in-law, my mind would go back to Philippians 2, and I would think how minuscule my service is compared to how Christ stooped to serve me. You know, there were other times when I would start to whine and complain to Shirley. Yeah, I do that sometimes. Come on, so do you. Not to Shirley, maybe, but... I hope not. She's got enough from me. But there would be times I would whine and complain to Shirley about how much of my work time was being eaten up by ministering to mom. I would be rebuked by this passage. See, in my moments of temptation toward arrogance and self-pity, I needed again this passage that we've been talking about. He, the infinite, eternal Christ, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. What about you? What joyful sacrifice is God calling you to in light of the infinite sacrifice of our eternal Savior? Sounds like another great prompting for a third prayer, doesn't it? We're not quite done yet. We're getting closer, but join me. Heavenly Father, I confess this sin, my arrogance, and my self-pity. In light of Christ's humility and self-giving, the ugliness and selfishness of my sin is exposed. But I'm not the only self-centered sinner here tonight. Though we are saints, we still are in the flesh, and so we ask you together in Christ's name, to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask you through the power of Christ, not through our own resources, that we would live like Christ, humbly and sacrificially. Help us to forgive others as you have forgiven us. Help us to bless those who curse us as you have blessed us. Help us to die to ourselves and to live for others as Jesus models for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, the believers in Philippi, they were much like us. They struggled with fear, worry, anxiety. 
They lived in a world that opposed everything they believed in, and we can certainly say amen to that for us. They battled pride and self-centeredness. They had relational conflicts. They were saints, sinners, and sufferers, and so were we. And what does Paul say to, to saints who struggle with suffering and sin? Paul begins now to talk about our motive for Christian living. We live worthy of the gospel by living for Christ. He communicates it like this in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I've had the privilege several times of speaking at Bethel Church in Crown Point, Indiana. And as you stand in that pulpit and as you look at the back of that auditorium, your eyes spy a sign with four simple words with one profound message. It's all about him. And of course, that him is Christ. It's a reminder to the preacher in the pulpit that it's not about the preacher preaching. It's about Christ. And it's a reminder that entire congregation as they exit 24-7, it's all about him. Now, not only can preaching become all about us, but counseling can become all about us, right? I mean, it can be like, do they think I'm loving? Do they think I have a clue what I'm doing? We never think that, right? I mean, we can struggle. Counseling can become all about me instead of all about him. Or counseling can become all about them, about the counselee. We care about them. We hurt with their hurts and their suffering. We weep in their weeping. We see their sin and the mess that they're in. We see the damage their sin is doing to themselves and others and God's testimony. And, and so it's very easy to kind of get sucked in, right, that, that counseling is all about the counselee. But if it's really about the counselee, it's really about him, we really care about the counselee, we, we direct that counselee not to themselves ultimately, but we direct them to that ultimate purpose that Christ has been talking about, that Paul's been talking about, to glorify Christ. Now let's think how this passage changes our focus from it's all about me to it's all about Christ. We always talk about living today in light of eternity. Well, think about this passage in eternity. What's eternity all about? Paul pictures eternity for us in verses 9 to 11. Jesus is exalted. We bow the knee before him. Everyone confesses that he is Lord to the glory of God. So what better, grander, ultimate purpose for us to move our lives toward and our counselee's life toward than that they're living today in light of eternity. It's all about him. I mean, consider the difference this could make in our marriages and our marriage counseling. We all know that part of marriage is to be some small picture, semblance of Christ's relationship to the church. Now, as you leave here tonight, and maybe you start getting lost going to your hotel or something, and that, that, that little squabble starts, what if we all started thinking about, and of course you want your spouse to start thinking that next if you're married, but what if we both started thinking? What if right now my purpose was to make this moment all about him? Would that change our squabbles a little bit? I think it might. As we hit the home stretch here, you might think, well, good, Bob's on verse 11. It, we're going to wrap up. We're close. We might think this passage concludes with verse 11, but the therefore in verse 12 tells us there's some connection between one, one or verses 1 and 11, and verses 12 to 18. There's a natural implication there. And these verses teach us not only that it's all about him, but verses 12 to 18 that are naturally connected teach us that 
It all leads to gospel joy. Here's how it's said in Philippians 2, 17 to 18. Paul says, but even, and this isn't theory for Paul, right? This is reality. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. You too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now that's not happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances and feelings. That's joy. That's gospel joy. Paul's in prison. And he's talking about even suffering, even persecution, even death can bring me gospel joy if I'm focused on Christ. Vibia Perpetua knew gospel joy. She lived in Carthage in North Africa in the second century during the persecution of the Christians under the Roman emperor. She was 21 years old. She grew up in a prominent, unbelieving home. She came to know Christ and her father, who she described in some of her memoirs as a, as a pagan man who, who wanted to guilt her into rejecting Christ because she had a young infant daughter. She had a husband who's totally out of the picture. She's 21, comes to Christ. One week later, she and six other friends her age who also came to Christ were arrested and told that if they did not recant their testimony for Christ, they would be executed. And this one-week-old baby in Christ Perpetua led these six other young believers, babes in Christ, to refuse to recant their faith. As they were being led to their execution, eyewitnesses penned this account. Catch this. The day of their victory dawned. Now that takes a mental shift, right? The day of their victory dawned, and with joyful countenances, they marched from the prison to the arena as though on their way to heaven. They were on their way to heaven. If there was any trembling, it was from joy, not fear. For me, there'd at least be a mixture of reasons. Perpetua followed, I love this, with a quick step as a true spouse of Christ, the darling of God, her brightly flashing eyes quelling the gaze of the crowd. To the onlooking crowd, Perpetua was nothing but entertainment. But she knew that to Christ, she was his bride. If there was ever someone living, Philippians 2 one, it was perpetua. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. See, we, we have this mistaken idea that if we give everything for Christ, there'll be nothing left for us. Like God is some kind of cosmic hoarder. We sang about the overflow of his grace this evening. It ministered to me as we sang it. Think about Romans eight seventeen. If we share in his suffering, we share also in his glory. Think about right here in this context, Philippians 2.15. Paul says, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, and catch this, in which you shine like stars in the universe. Do you ever wonder, does my life make a difference? Does my life have meaning, purpose, Does it really matter? Philippians 2.15 says, yes! Live for Christ and for all eternity in this crooked and depraved generation. You will shine like a star in the universe for Christ. Did you know that you could go to the International Star Registry and for $54, you could have a star named after you or someone you love. 
I saw this advertised on the internet, and I kind of put it together, some of their phrases, because it was like one of those infamous infomercials. Here's kind of their wording on the website. Purchase now, and you'll also receive a beautiful 12-inch by 16-inch full-color parchment certificate personalized with the star name, date, and coordinates. Don't delay, and we'll also add a personalized 12-inch by 16-inch sky chart containing the star name, star date, constellation, and location circled in red where the star is in the sky. Order within two hours, and you'll also receive a booklet on astronomy written by a professional astronomer, not an amateur professional, with additional sky charts. Call now and we'll send you a letter of congratulation for the recipient or for yourself. So, here's my advice. Save the $54 and invest in eternity. Live your life today through Christ's power and for Christ's glory, and you will receive much more than a star named after you. For all eternity, you will shine as a star in heaven reflecting the matchless glory of our matchless Savior, who by grace will say, well done, thou good and faithful child. Well, for me, Easter Sunday, April 14th, 1974, it was only a beginning, right? See, we somehow have gained this mistaken notion that the gospel is only for the unsaved. The gospel is also for Christians. It's for us. Christ is so much more than that fire insurance policy out of hell. Christ according to Philippians 2, is our very reason for existence. God has invited us prodigals by grace into his family so that we could live worthy of the gospel, living through Christ, like Christ, and for Christ. In light of Philippians 2, 1 to 18, I'd like to conclude with with three searching questions that I think each section of this passage bring to our minds. Question number one, who am I living through? We started with that, right? Who am I living through? Philippians 2, 1 to 4. Am I attempting to live in my own power or through Christ's resurrection power at work within us? As we leave here after Saturday, we're going to be excited, we're going to be energized, but we're going to need Christ's resurrection power. Who am I living through? Am I attempting to live in my own power or through Christ's resurrection power at work within me? Question 2, based on verses 5 through 8. Who am I living like? As people look at my life, do they see a model by grace, an example of Christ-like, sacrificial, giving, humble love? Who am I living like? As people look at my life, do they see a model, an example of Christ-like, sacrificial, giving, humble love? And finally, question three, based on verses 9 to 18, who am I living for? Is my life all about me or is my life all about him. And we know if it's all about him, he's got grace abounding to all of us as chief of sinners that he will not just name a star after us, but give us the ability to share in his glory. Question three, who am I living for? Is my life all about me or is my life all about him? I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer. And this time we will be done when I'm done, at least my part of the evening. Please join me. Heavenly Father, We long for our lives to be worthy of the gospel, and we know that only happens by grace. Our salvation is by grace, and our sanctification is by grace. We thank and praise you for our salvation in, through, and for Christ. We thank you for our sanctification in, through, and for Christ. We ask you to empower us to live our Christian lives through Christ, like Christ, and for Christ. May someone be able to say of us, as I've said earlier of of Ron Alchin, and he would want to turn all that praise back to you, 
that we are simply a small mirror to others of Christlikeness. By your grace, may our lives be a shining star in your registry of those to whom you will say, well done, my good and faithful grace child. Please empower us to live through, like, and for Christ so that other churches, so that our churches might become gospel-centered, Christ-focused, congregations saturated with one another ministry for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org.